As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Thank you. 
Michael Adams from the fantastic Forgotten Australia podcast is back with us on Australian True Crime this week with one of his brilliant historical cases. Michael has a new book that's fresh off the presses. It's called The Murder Squad, How Australia's Toughest Cops Hunted the Monsters of the Great Depression. And he joins us to talk about one of those so-called monsters. As always, though, we begin by setting the scene that was the backdrop of the crimes of this man, which is to say Michael describes what life was like in Australia a hundred years ago during the Great Depression. Yeah, we kind of get this idea that the Great Depression was this great kumbaya moment when, you know, all Australians sort of, you know, came together and, you know, they all chipped in and helped each other and all of that kind of stuff. And there's certainly, that certainly did happen, but there was a really dark flip side to it as well with, you know, just massive social dislocation, massive poverty. And then, of course, there are actual murderers, actual monsters stalking New South Wales in increasing numbers. And of course, you know, the police force at the time, I think per capita was about half the number or less than half the number we have today. You know, they had barely any cars and very few of those cars had wireless radios. A lot of stations didn't have telephone connections. You know, you, there is, as we'll hear, literally an instance of, you know, cops getting buses to crime scenes. And, you know, by the time they get there, well, the murderer's got a bit of a head start now because, you know, it's been two hours since the phone call came through. Getting buses. Which monster? <laughs> if, you, if you could pick one monster to tell us about today from your brood, who would you choose? We'll choose William Moxley. Uh, his crimes were... The most shocking of 1932, among the most shocking of the 20th century, strangely largely forgotten today. I mean, we remember cases like the Pajama Girl, the Shark Arm case, the Wanda Beach murders. This was at that level at the time in terms of, you know, everyday awareness and outrage. But I'll start at the start, you know, when the crime took place. It was the 5th of April, 1932, in the evening. And a very handsome young couple were going out for a drive. This was Dorothy Denzel. She was 21. She was a really beautiful looking girl. Um, you know, if she'd been in Hollywood, she probably would have been, you know, in the pictures. She'd worked at the GPO as a receptionist uh, until the Great Depression started. She'd lost her job and then she'd taken a job as a nursemaid uh, to a family in Burwood. So her bloke was Frank Wilkinson. He was 26. He lived with his people nearby in Homebush, and he worked as a compositor with the Sun tabloid newspaper. So they were a nice young couple. They were doing pretty well despite, you know, tough times. They were close to their families. They went out for a spin in his red Alvis sports car, which was a two-seater, and it had a dicky seat at the back, which is kind of a, a fold-down seat. And th they went out for a drive, um, and they didn't come back. The next morning... Uh, his bed hadn't been slept in, her bed hadn't been slept in, and their families respectively feared the worst immediately. They were very close to their families, and this was just completely out of character. So it made the papers really quickly. It very quickly emerges that the Alvis car has been found at a garage in Ashfield. It's been taken there by a man, a fairly distinctive-looking man, and then the next day, he's come back with another bloke, and they've started stripping it. And the guy who owns the garage, he calls the police in. They stake the garage out, but the people don't return. When they search the car, 
They find strips of a picnic rug that have been torn into sort of ropes and a mask that's been made out of a hessian sack with eye holes cut out in the back of the car. There's also a newspaper that's open to a story about the disappearance of these two. So they're really on red alert now, like hopes are fading that they're going to find Frank and Dorothy alive. Some men come forward as well to say that they've bought bits of the car from this guy. This guy goes by various names, but he's a super distinctive looking fellow. Like you take one look at him and you're not going to you're not going to mistake him for anybody else. And immediately the police show the mugshots of known criminals in the area and they know exactly who they're looking for. His name is William Cyril Moxley and uh, he's not to be found at his house in Burwood that he shares with his girlfriend Linda and his son Douglas, who's 12. Further, his truck, which is at his house in Burwood, has blood splashed on one of the sort of sides of the truck and they find hessian sacks that he uses to cart wood and one of them has a piece cut out of it that exactly matches the hessian sack mask found in the back of the Elvis. So from the get-go, the police are pretty sure they know who they're looking for. And on the 11th of April, they find Frank Wilkinson in a shallow grave. He's face down. His hands are tied behind his back with strips from that picnic rug. He's been severely battered around the face and his head has been blown apart at close range by a shotgun. They feel that there is absolutely no hope they're going to find Dorothy Denzel alive. So Frank's funeral is being held the next day when they find her in about half a mile away. Again, shallow grave, hands tied, battered, shot in the face, and sexually assaulted, they think. They can't determine exactly whether she's been sexually assaulted or whether she'd had sex shortly before she was killed. On the day that Frank Wilkinson was found dead, Moxley had turned up at the house of an old neighbour of his, Frank Corbett, called in for a cup of tea and said, you know, are you interested in some firewood? I'll deliver some firewood to you. And uh, Corbett had said, yeah, sure, come back in a few days. Through the grapevine, Corbett realises that Moxley's, you know, the chief suspect. He calls the cops and say, the guy was just at my house. The cops come around and Corbett says to them, look, I'm going to have a gun ready for when he comes back. And they're like, there's no way he's going to come back. So they don't stake the house out. Lo and behold, two days later, Corbett and his mate have been sitting in a blind for two days with their guns, waiting for Moxley to return. They finally get sick of it and go inside the house. Just as they do this, they hear the dog barking, and there's Moxley coming up the driveway. Frank Corbett runs out and says, Bill, hands up, I know what you've done. Moxley bolts. Corbett fires a shot to try and stop him. Moxley gets away. Corbett calls the Bankstown police to tell them what's happened. This is where the constable has no car and has to get a bus and then hitch a ride the rest of the way. By the time he arrives, interviews Corbett, and then they call the CIB and the CIB get there, Moxie's got a two-hour head start. Massive search in the area around. He hides out for about a week. The Sun newspaper has his front picture on the front page. His name and his aliases are known everywhere. There's wanted posters distributed all over the place. And this pays off on the 21st of April. Uh, a, a fellow sees Moxley go on his bike into the bushland, calls the Manly police. Three detectives come up. They creep into the bush. They see him there. 
they say stop, they chase him, they, he darts off into, into the undergrowth, they're looking for him, they're standing on a little cliff and they see that he's right directly beneath oh. him. So two of them jump and they land on him pretty much and he's caught. Oh. So they haul him into to the Manly police station. He says, I know what I'm wanted for. I did not kill those people. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Moxley was born in 1899 in Rockhampton. And we talk these days about early trauma being um, a determinant factor in you know, your later development. Yeah. Uh, when Moxley was three, his father was shot in the stomach during a brawl, and the bullet was lodged in the in, in the father's stomach. In 1910, Moxley is 11 years old. He's at a friend's place with his uh, younger brother, and they find a shotgun leaning against a fence. And the little boy says to Moxley, "Point it at me for fun." Oh, he does, no. pulls the trigger, and blows his six-year-old brother out of the world. Oh. The next year, his father finally dies from that gunshot wound. You know, almost a decade after being shot, the, the bullet in his gut finally kills him. So Moxley suffers these massive early traumas. He joins the AIF when he's of age and or just before he's of age and goes to Europe just as the war's about to end. He marries an English girl named Ada, comes back to Sydney and then starts his new career as a thief. He gets busted for a few petty jobs, did a bit of time. 
got out again, was the head of this gang that was doing bunch, bunches of robberies. And in 1923, the cops raided his uh, hideout in Redfern. They arrested his wife and his um, colleagues, and Moxley legged it, and he's being chased across the rooftops. And the story went that at this point, he had a gun, and he turned around and he pointed it at Billy Mackay, who at this point was a rising sergeant. And he saw that it was Mackay, and then threw the gun down and took off. And he was caught a few days later, and he got three years. Later on, he'd say, supposedly, well, this is what Mackay said, that Moxley had said to him, when I saw it was you, I just couldn't do it. So Mackay could have been shot by Moxley, and it seems like he felt a bit of a debt to this guy. So he made him his informer, his fizz gig, his snitch. In 1930, Moxley was dobbing in a bunch of bank robbers who were about to pull a job. These guys were on the way in Sutherland in the car when the cops swooped and arrested them. They had like, you know, jemmies on them. They had guns on them. They were busted big time. So these guys were uh, committed to stand trial, but they were allowed out on bail. Who should turn up with a bullet in his head on Parramatta Road but Moxley three, three weeks later? So he's gone, he's gone out with these guys and they've been driving around when all of a sudden they've pulled a gun and said, Snowy, that was his nickname, Snowy, I'm going to shoot you. And they shot him in the side of the head, like in the ear. Right, So the bullet explodes into his head. There's fragments in his ear, in the intracranial area, beneath the skin, gets taken to hospital. And he says, you know, I know who did it, but I'm not going to say anything to the cops. I'm no squealer. I'll get them in my own time, which of course is absolute bullshit. Because, you know, Mackay, the very next day, is raiding places in Redfern to get these guys. (laughs) So Moxley is now in, you know, a week after, um, a few days after Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson have gone missing and he's caught. He's got newspapers in his little camp. He's been following the details of the case. He says, I want to be taken to Inspector Mackay, to Superintendent Mackay. He's taken to the CIB and there, over the next uh, eight hours, he's interrogated by Mackay and personally by Mackay and he gives a statement and he is charged with the murder of Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson. But everything that he said, he said to Mackay in Mackay's presence alone. So, you know, it's pretty much Mackay's word. And of course, Mackay, Big Bill, doesn't want it known that, you know, he's been paying this guy. He's actually given him money in the past two years. What Moxley said was that he headed out that night in his truck, intending to go and get some wood. Uh, he had a bit of engine trouble. He came across Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson near their car and on the spur of the moment decided to rob them. There was a fight. He held them at gunpoint and tied them up. Then he marched them off to this cottage. Then he took the Alvis out for a spin, tried to get petrol for it, came back to the cottage. There was another fight. He beat uh, Frank Wilkinson. And then the next thing he remembers, he's driving the Alvis over a bridge at Milperra. So there's a big black space where his memory is. He says he didn't kill those people at all. If he did anything, he can't remember it. He's never been a violent person, etc., etc. He was committed to stand trial, and his story was that you know he was a hardworking guy who had suffered this tragedy of his father being shot, him shooting his brother when he was a kid, having been shot in the head when he was performing a service as a result of performing a service for the police. He just sort of framed it as being you know performing a service, you know, doing his 
duty as a citizen rather than admitting that he was a paid informer. He said subsequent to being shot in the head, he'd you know, developed anger issues. He couldn't remember things. He was subject to fits. Sometimes he'd have these fits and he wouldn't be able to remember anything for hours. Ah. Um, all of this sort of stuff. And he had no memory of anything beyond holding Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson up. Uh, if he'd done anything to harm them, he hadn't done it consciously. And that was, his, I guess, his defense. The jury was out. And then the jury was back and he was found guilty of the murder of both Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson. And as was the case at the time, that was an automatic death sentence. In jail, Moxley uh, took great solace uh, from a Salvation Army chaplain. They met continually. Uh, Moxley would gaze out of his cell window at what he called his star. He wrote a quite sort of eloquent beautiful even uh, letter on the 17th, the morning of the 17th of August, 1932. And then he went to the hangman and uh, the bolt was drawn, the trap door opened and he dropped and didn't say a thing, didn't move. Apparently he uh, died instantaneously. What I think happened is that I do think he was a traumatized dude. I mean, from the various things that had happened to him, I think that he did go out with the intention of perhaps robbing someone. Yep. And what happened was he had the fight as he testified with Frank and Dorothy and the mask the mask came off. And as I've said, this guy was super distinctive looking. So if he was arrested for this and charged and convicted, he'd be looking at a decade at least for armed robbery and assault, perhaps even attempted murder. And he'd be in jail. And that would be a death sentence for a fizz gig, for an informer. So my thinking is that he had felt that he had no choice due to immense trauma. He's now committed this crime and this situation's escalated where it is possible that he dissociated and he killed them. Thank you to our guest today, Michael Adams. There's a link in the show notes to his podcast, Forgotten Australia, a link to help you buy his book, The Murder Squad, How Australia's Toughest Cops Hunted the Monsters of the Great Depression, and also a link to his publisher's website where you can read a free excerpt. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.